Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Several years ago, I began the curious habit of memorizing the opening lines of my favorite novels and works of nonfiction. One of my all-time favorites is the opening to John Irving's novel, A Prayer for Owen Meany. You may know the movie that was created after this novel, known as Simon Birch. The novel opens with these words, I am doomed to remember a boy with a wrecked voice. Not because of his voice, or because he was the smallest person I ever knew, or even because he was the instrument of my mother's death, but because he is the reason I believe in God. I'm a Christian because of Owen Meany. I turn to these words today as I remember and honor my professor, my mentor, my colleague at Colorado Christian University, and my friend, Dr. Larry Crabb. You see, as Irving might say, I, Michael, am blessed to remember a man with a prophetic voice, not because of his voice or because he was one of the most brilliant men I ever knew, or even because he was the instrument of me meeting my wife of 30 years, but because he is the reason I believe in God. I am a Christian because of Larry Crabb. On Sunday morning, February 28th, Larry Crabb crossed the thin place from this life into being with life, life itself, the blessed trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same blessed trinity of which Larry spent his life teaching about. Larry Crabb was a clinical psychologist, spiritual director, professor, and author of over 20 books, including Shattered Dreams, Finding God and his best-selling Inside Out. Larry served as professor at Grace Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana for many years, where he founded the Institute of Biblical Counseling. He then moved that program and the Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling to Colorado Christian University in 1989, where he served as director and professor, and then later at CCU as Distinguished Scholar-in-Residence. It's written in the Psalms, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Larry's life and his generous investment in my life was precious, and to literally countless others who have been touched by his writing, teaching, preaching, care, and spiritual direction and friendship. What follows is a conversation with my friend Jim Cress. Jim is a veteran radio broadcaster who used to host the Minnerth Meyer Clinic 
as well as Hope in the Night with June Hunt, and he's worked closely with Dr. Tim Clinton with the American Association of Christian Counseling and all of their media projects. Jim is currently a licensed professional counselor in Charlotte, North Carolina, specializing in sexual addiction. You can learn more about Jim at jimcress.com, and that's Cress, C-R-E-S-S. Now, to set the stage for the conversation with Jim, I need to back up and share a little bit of my story, which will put my my love and appreciation for Larry in perspective. I said at the outset that Larry is the reason I believe in God. See, I grew up nominally Catholic and made my confirmation in eighth grade, and for about four years I was at least outwardly hostile to God and claimed not to believe anything. And then in my junior year of high school, 1980, through young life, I became a Jesus follower, and it radically changed my life. But internally, I had a secret life. I was addicted to pornography and lust, and that would eventually become a full-blown sexual addiction. During college, I was on the six-year plan. I spent the summer at Young Life's Frontier Ranch in Buena Vista, Colorado. I was on summer staff in 1986, and it was there that my life began to unravel, that I began to bump into brokenness and shame and pain. During that summer there, as I worked on the rappelling and rock climbing course and the ropes course, there was a counselor who was there with the kids he brought from his youth group, and he was uh, struck by lightning and died under my watch in the ravine there in Buena Vista. And although there wasn't any direct responsibility, I felt personally responsible for that, and I was one of the first people on the scene. Later that same summer, there was a student camper who was injured under my watch, and in that case, I was indirectly responsible. And during that summer, as I began to bump up against what really felt like my life being deconstructed, Christianity not working at all, I began to be depressed, and I began to feel like I wasn't a very strong Christian, and up till that point, I felt like I was super Christian. But I left Buena Vista, Colorado that summer, went back home to rejoin my life in Cleveland, Ohio, and finish college. And I said to myself as I arrived back in Ohio, someday I'm going to live in Colorado. And I cut out a picture of a red Jeep Wrangler and I put it on my bulletin board. Someday I'm going to live in Colorado. Someday I'm going to drive a Jeep. Well, for the next year or two, my life began to unravel more. And I became more and more of a good-looking Christian on the outside and on the inside. I felt farther and farther away from God until one day when there was an article in the local newspaper saying FBI raids escort service. This prostitution ring had been busted because of a local celebrity and a local professional athlete that had been implicated in it. And suddenly on the front page of the newspaper, I was about to be found out for my sexual addiction, which had escalated to the point of paying for sex and acting out in all kinds of illegal and immoral ways. In that sexual addiction moment, I ended up going to a Christian counselor. I had no idea who he was, but I would later learn 
that he was a student of Dr. Larry Krabs at Grace Seminary back in the mid-1980s. And this man spoke truth into my life, and he provided a gracious presence. And at one of the earlier sessions, I said, what can I read? What can you give me that can help me begin to make sense of my faith? Because I've got the struggle on the inside and with my behavior, but it doesn't connect with what I believe and what I claim to be true. And Larry Crabb's book, Inside Out, was the first ever book which deeply and profoundly highlighted the reality of struggle on the inside, of struggle with the inside and the outside not matching. And it's a book that for the first time, someone was putting words to the deep longings inside of me. To the, to the ways that, as Larry called them, wrong strategies that I had learned to cope and choices I had made to protect myself and to preserve my own well-being. And I said to this counselor, so how can I do what you do? How could I ever learn from this man that wrote this book and that trained you? And I remember he smiled and said, well, this program just moved from Indiana to Colorado, at which point I just smiled. And as Providence would have it, I applied to the program, got rejected the first time, but bumped into Larry's then colleague, Dr. Dan Allender, at a sexual abuse seminar. You see, what was underneath my addiction was sexual abuse and shame and a whole lifetime of compulsiveness. Well, because I had not taken my college career seriously, I had a 2.2 GPA. And when I met Dan Alder at that Wounded Heart Sexual Abuse Conference, I explained my situation to him, and apparently he saw something in me. He said, you tell the dean of students who rejected you that I met you and that I've given you an interview and that you can come to Colorado and do a face-to-face interview, and I want you to be in our program. So I wrote the dean a lengthy letter and explained all this, and the dean wrote back. And I still have this letter that's in front of me today that was written in 1990. This dean said, Michael, I have to be candid with you. I have a good many misgivings. Should you be admitted to the program in counseling about your ability to keep up with others who are in the program? And scratch my head, how did this happen? But I was admitted to the program. And five years later, I was an assistant professor of counseling working alongside Larry Crabb, who I had initially gone there just to hopefully I would have a conversation at some time during my two years there. And so out of my brokenness and out of my weakness and out of my sexual addiction and showing up in a counselor's office, I had this providential moment of encountering this book of taking a risk and moving toward a dream, and then a life unfolding that I could not have imagined. And this is why Larry Crabb is the reason why I am a Christian today, because the questions that he was raising and the ways that he connected these to Scripture literally saved my life. And later in 1994, when I blew up my marriage and my double life of sin and addiction was discovered, Larry was the one who walked beside Julianne and I to help our marriage heal. Through the years, Larry and I have come to have some different theoretical and theological views, but I will always respect and forever appreciate the friendship, 
and the guidance and the mentorship that he provided. Among those things are, first, a modeling of an unquenchable passion for God and his glory. Larry was constantly talking about this deep passion within him for holiness, to be with God face-to-face, to know him more deeply. Secondly, Larry had a way of reading and teaching the scriptures from the perspective of the larger story. And now there's a lot of people who talk about the larger story. You can read their books. But Larry was one of the very first that started developing this framework of our faith in Christ and our story that is referred to in Hebrews 12, too, that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, that there's an author who's telling a larger story and that we get to be part of that. The third thing, as I think about Larry, is how he consistently, relentlessly pointed to the loving, gracious, merciful, tender side of God, and always saw in me and others that beneath sin and beneath brokenness, that there was the image of God in a good heart. Larry taught me about the new covenant and the new heart. He lived a life of brutal honesty, which led me in my life to commit years ago to say, after I had lived a life of deception and created a double life, I said, I will be honest about my struggles, and foremost, I will be honest with myself. And that led to one of my core values, which is to live and lead from weakness. Finally, Larry taught me, and he taught all of us, that change, real change is possible, that it's our birthright, that it should be expected as followers of Jesus. And he taught us how to cooperate with God so that the life of Christ could be formed within us. I will miss Larry Crabb. His absence will be felt deeply from me, from his friends, from his family, and from all of those who were touched by his life. And yet now, he is home. Mr. Jim Crass, welcome to the Restoring the Soul podcast. Michael John Cusick, it is good to be with you, my longtime brother and friend. It really is. It's been a long time, and we're, uh, we're able to connect today to remember our mentor and spiritual father, Larry Crabb. We don't have a list of pre-prepared questions. Um, we do not. We did this rather spontaneously, but you mm-hmm. are a veteran broadcaster. You're also uh, a veteran of having been a student of Larry's, a Colorado Christian. You worked with him in radio. You worked with him in his ministry. So mm-hmm. uh, we're now just less than 48 hours out from him yeah. to be with the Lord. Where are you at? Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about this. Yeah, I think, Michael, thank you for... Um for just having me here to be with you. And of all people, I've shared this with you before we went on the air here that you get it, you understand. And I um, have had a a strange sense of grief and comfort at the same time. This is true. I have known no one who has longed for and talked about heaven and getting off this planet as Larry did. Matter of fact, they're not far from you in Denver, Colorado, high atop a hospital. I, I was working for him when I lived out there with you. And he had one of those terrible diagnoses. He's had those off and on for years. 
And I mean, we were all thinking he's not going to make it through this. And lo and behold, the doctor comes in and says, and Larry taught and told this, but I was there. remember when this happened and the doctor said, uh, actually, good news. You're going to make it through. And he was staring off a high story, uh, looking out a window and thinking, and he was sad and a bit angry. Even and I said, why would you be angry and disappointed? Because I was ready to go to heaven. Now, Michael, that was 16, 17 years ago. So he has been, he wrote his book about waiting for heaven and, and longing to go there. And so it's the strange sense that he is really at home where he's wanted to go. And yet I will miss him. I think my grief with him will come on as the days go on, as I miss the fact that I won't be able to have coffee with him. That's for sure. Well, I remember uh, countless times, whether it was when working with him at Colorado Christian as an intern counselor or as a professor, where I had opportunities to have meals and coffee with him and so many conversations where it just felt like the natural thing to do was to talk not about Christianity, not about uh, belief, but about the heart and the soul and our inner world and about God. Larry yeah. is one of the, the few people who I heard uh, talk about God in a way that, um, especially back in the late 80s and early 90s, just opened up brand new categories for yeah. me. Was that the case with you? It was. I sat with a therapist for eight years in Dallas who was trained under both Larry and Dan Allender. And I was working at an organization, I say respectfully, the Minrith Meyer Clinic at that time, hosting their radio show. But I was hearing stuff vicariously through my therapist in Dallas who had studied with, with Larry and with Dan. And, and I thought, man, I've never heard this stuff before. Someone would give me marriage builder. And then as many of people who went through what they called the program began to basically teach a lot of Larry's material. I thought, man, I'd never heard this before. And then I ended up getting to meet Larry and talk with him. And then one thing led to the other. I came out there where not only was Larry a professor of mine, so were you, Michael. And uh, I loved my two years there, especially the one first year. But I began to read more. I got to do some radio shows with Larry. And inside, it was almost like it's a little, little maybe over the top here, but the scripture that like no one's ever talked to us like this before. No one's ever spoken to us. And I felt that there was something deeper, something more real that I was drawn to in what he said. I have a journal in front of me, Jim, that I pulled up. Uh, and it's from May 11th, 1994. And Larry had a, uh, a ritual, if you will, or a tradition. Uh, every year there was a graduating class at Colorado Christian. And from 1989 through uh, 2001, there were graduating classes there. And he was part of that through 1997. Uh, but in 1994, when I was an intern, I, I took these notes on these 10 things. And I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll just have you comment on a couple. You know, so many of his books were about suffering, uh, whether it was his book, Shattered Dreams or Finding yeah. God. And so number six on his list of top 10 things to remember, these were statements of just his deep convictions uh, of what he wanted to speak into our lives as we headed out to pastor, counsel, disciple, teach, etc., He said, thirst for a kind of righteousness that you will only know after years of suffering through the disappointments and assaults of life. Mm. When you know that nothing can destroy you, then you are free to love. Where does your mind go with that? 
he goes back actually to an early conversation with Larry. And I said to him straight up, I said, so it, if I hear you right, should I just kind of expedite the process here and just go out and search for suffering? Now, I came after you had were there, although you were there in the program when I was there. That's 2001, right around Shattered Dreams. And I couldn't imagine. I thought, do I need to just go out and search for suffering? Not knowing that on June 4th, 2001, not long after I had closed the door down, I emceed the final program that you were a professor in with Larry there. Then on June 4th, 2001, my sister and her three-year-old twin daughters were killed on a head-on car crash. Mm. Suffering found me really quickly. And I, what I took from that is, no, I'm not going to go out and try to find the suffering and find a ditch to get into or create problems. I did want to, and this is kind of a very Larry word, I wanted to embrace the suffering when it came there. And two quotes came to mind that I must say I learned first from an old uh, Larry grad, uh, Billy Grammer, who was a dear friend therapist in Dallas. When he quoted the union statement that uh, the refusal to embrace legitimate suffering produces neuroses. And I remember I wrote my journal and we probably largely have a neurotic church today. So when legitimate suffering comes your way, embrace it. And then M. Scott Peck, who wrote, this was not from any Larry person, but Scott Peck wrote that uh, mental health that we all want is a commitment to reality at all costs. It's not just a commitment to reality at all costs. That helped me. So it tied in. It, it kind of hand in glove with some of Larry's teaching. But um, Larry had, I, I did travel with him and work with him very closely. And you and I were talking, his son kept, but Duncan Sprague said this not long ago, one of the last recordings they did. When it's like, Dad, you got all these good things going. I remember when Kep said this. His son said, hey, why are you so miserable? I did a, a Facebook social media post about Larry. And one of the things in the middle of it, a long tribute to him, was uh, Larry was one of the messiest people I ever met inside in his internal world. I mean, there was, uh, I think he thought at times he was Jeremiah the prophet, literally the weeping prophet. So he he wrestled in a way deeply, and I respect him for that that I tried to become almost at times a crabite or something and see if I could. And my wrestling has not been that deep. It's been deep in some ways. I couldn't match the intensity of a lot of Larry's wrestling and I quit trying to, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sure does. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was initially drawn to him. And then so grateful to have spent time with him in different capacities is that He's one of the few, quote, Christian leaders who I respected his thinking and yeah. his ability to understand the inner life of a person who was equally as broken as I was. And his was not manifest externally, like mind yeah. addiction and things like that, but he would regularly speak and preach and teach out of his own pain and depression and deep questioning and confusion. Years ago, I interviewed Mike Iaconelli for the Marcel Review, and I remember Iaconelli saying that as he entered into his early 50s, I asked him what his calling was, and he said something I didn't understand at the time, but he said, I name things for people. And I said, tell me more about that. And he said, that's all good preaching is, is naming things, so that you're sitting there and you're, you're saying something, people go, oh my gosh, that's me, or you're reading my mail. And Larry had that sense of teaching and preaching and taking the scriptures and, and these deep 
scriptures that, you know, he spent so much time in the Old Testament stories that people would never know or think had any meaning and then tied them into his own life and into people yeah. that he knew and was and was walking with. And, you know, one of the things, a couple of the last conversations that he and I had really led me to ask the question, and this is so important, in the midst of our misery, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of how deep our soul pain can be, what is the path to joy? And it was um, my journey for a long time where I saw the end point as being deep in my suffering and being deep in my pain. And that's what it meant to be mature. And I actually have since discovered that there's a way through it and that yeah. there's actually joy and that the end point. And I, I really tribute him with the introduction into the pain. Just another thought. I know that you were very involved when Billy Graham the world famous evangelist passed. And I think you even went to his funeral. I did. Yeah. Some of that on Facebook and through uh, your broadcasting relationships, you had some contacts and, and whatnot. But when Billy died, I remember certain young people going, who's Billy Graham. Yeah. And I found that kind of unthinkable because I remember <laughs> as a young Christian, as a young Christian, I remember going, Oh my gosh, you know, the world's going to end when Billy Graham dies. Yeah. And I, I was sad. But it's sad to me today that there's an entire generation that doesn't know who Larry Crabb is. And truly, and let's just take a moment and kind of talk about his place in Christian history, if you will. He was arguably uh, one of the, the very, very early writer thinkers um, in the world of Christian psychology. That's we, right. could, we could say that he's a patriarch in the world of mm -hmm. Christian counseling. The field of Christian counseling, as it was called, then really took off in the mid-1980s and exploded in the early 1990s with proliferation of programs and certificates and things like that. And, and he was writing books on the very cutting edge of that all along the way. And you were a part of that movement all along the way. So how do you see his place in Christian history as it relates to his role as a kind of prophetic psychologist? Well because great minds think alike, you literally just took my words. You didn't took them, you stated them first. That is brilliant, prophetic psychologist. That's what I thought about. Others were accurate clinically, many that I've worked very, very closely with through the years who are some of the big names out there for what, however you want to put that. But there was a clinical expertise, sometimes like with Minrith and Meyer, who I obviously hosted the radio show for years, there was a, a medical, psychiatric expertise. But Larry came in in the midst of this and began to, while his heart was the biblical counseling, he had IBC, Institute for Biblical Counseling, and he changed it, Institute for Biblical Community. Larry was always changing. I put in my post, Larry was not a Groundhog Day kind of person at one level. He was not going to do the shampoo bottle, wash, rinse, and repeat. As he morphed and changed, he had a heart for, A, teaching the Bible. He loved the words. Take your Bibles today. That was one of his favorite things to do. So he began to speak into that and to really make it biblical, but not in a way that others had done, in my opinion, where they would say whatever they wanted to say clinically and take post-it notes and attach Bible verses all over that. I'm just not into judgment anymore, man. It's like, that's what they did. Larry was trying to come from a, almost an exegetical standpoint and say, what does the text really say? And how can we both be both biblical and he was a brilliant psychologist himself. He never, ever got rid of his, as far as I know, his psychology um, 
certification or whatever, but he really wanted to speak to the heart of the old model. Remember that? The iceberg of deep longings and wrong strategies. I'll use that sometimes still today. What am I deeply longing for? And what are the wrong strategies that I might, some would call that sin. Others would just say it's a strategy of trying to make life work apart from God. And I think he was in that and ever more moving closer into the deeper soul, like you do, restoring the soul of where people really are, not just above them. He wasn't big, as you know, into diagnoses. And I think there's something about that. There's a day that labels can be helpful, but sometimes I say labels are for jars, not people. He wanted to really know the soul of people, I think. And he could be so surprising with um, things that he was reading that were cutting-edge secular resources. He was really very perceptive about culture. Um, and reading Irv Yalom, and he loved Irv Yalom, who I was, was gonna, an atheist. You know, it's like, come on. I was just going to say that. The year that I was an intern, we asked him, if you could sit down with anyone and have a conversation about your yeah. life and your struggles, who would it be? And he didn't hesitate. And he said, uh, Irvin Yalom, MD, who is now in his late 80s, I believe, lives in California and uh, an existential, the founder of existential psychotherapy, one of them, and an atheist. And, yeah. um, and the question was, well, why would you talk to him? And he said, because he has a capacity to listen and to understand what's happening inside of a person that I think would be very, very helpful. And therefore, there's something profound about that, about the just the very healing aspect of relationship, that yes, it's the Holy Spirit, and yes, it's the Word of God, but life on life, there's something that happens there in what we now know to be attachment, and in the corrective emotional experience that was yeah. pretty profound. Um, mm-hmm. I also remember talking one time when I was an intern, we would work with students that were in the counseling program. And, and basically, we did counseling with them, but we were called like lab practicum supervisors. And we'd spend an hour every week with people. And there was somebody that was really struggling with anxiety long before we knew about the window of tolerance and interpersonal neurobiology. This would have been in the early 90s. And I remember asking Larry what he would do. And he pulled out this this theory from 1969 at the University of <laughs> about about dipping your fingers in a cup of hot coffee and desensitizing this person's fear. And I was like, where did you get that? And doesn't that contradict with everything else you've been talking about this? Yeah. He said, no, because I want to be helpful. And in this instance, wow. this person wow. is suffering and we're not trying to cause suffering. We're not trying to stir up suffering. We're trying to help people to to know life in the midst of suffering. And so if what that person needed in that moment was to not be anxious, that's what he would have done. And so that sense of always trying to see the person behind the, the problem. And this, the person for a moment of, that you and I could spend, which we have no time, to hours telling anecdotal stories You know, one of the things about Larry having worked with him, as you did, very closely, and he just said this one of the last talks you can find that he did. It was one of his little webinars. I mean, maybe the last one recorded. And I knew this about him. He said, I like to go out to uh, he's here in Charlotte, where I live now. He said, I like to go out. He always loved to get coffee and breakfast. I like to go out and get coffee and do my devotions in the funnies. He would and he he said, pay all that money for the Charlotte Observer to read the funnies. But there was that side of him that loved reading the comics, like the kid in him almost, so to speak. And he, back in the day, would love to play golf. He loved good food. 
fun. He played Elvis, had a full Elvis outfit. There are pictures on YouTube. Go out and look, or I should say on Google Images. But he, he would play Elvis and sing and dance. And so for all of this dark Jeremiah despair part, he really knew how to have fun and play with his grandkids. And it's just a side that some people wouldn't be able to see about him while he could go deep. He had that part to be playful as well. Let me read another statement or two from uh, the last 10 things to remember from 1994. And this one is especially meaningful to me because it was literally eight weeks later where I blew up my marriage Hmm. and where everything fell apart. Number eight, today's failure never cancels yesterday's growth. Therefore, fear failure less and anticipate growth more. I will never forget, um, Larry's the one who I confessed to my sexual addiction and my double life on July 10th, 1994. This was written on May 11th, 1994. So those words were prophetic for me. And he walked Julianne and I through that and many, many breakfasts at the La Peep restaurant over on Bowles. All La Peep. By Columbine High School. And uh, I may share a couple of things he said to me, but this idea of fear failure less and anticipate growth more. I think one of the gifts that Larry gave, probably the first person, was helping me and, and so many to understand that we are powerful when we're weak and that our brokenness mm. is not a barrier to knowing God, but it's a bridge when we tell the truth about it. Well, I think um, this is not a Larry. It's one of the gem funnies, whatever, but F-E-A-R can stand for forget everything and run, or F-E-A-R can be face everything and rise, tying to the Brene Brown's research on resiliency. And there's that place that I can enter into my fears. And even with Larry, to tie it back to him, as you went into meaningful conversations, he could go deep. And But I never sensed, I really didn't, that he would go deep for the sake of deep. And the idea of saying, to point you back and say, when you are afraid, what do you want to do? How do you trust in God? So it's like, go. I tell people, and I think Larry would agree to this, It's I tell people, walk through your past, don't wallow in your past. Because every people think Larry's going to take you deep down that iceberg and go deep. But it was never for the purpose of just staying down in the drags. I felt like he was wanting to. So like face everything and rise. He wanted people to rise in resiliency, in my, in my opinion. Last one, number 10. And this would have been a drum roll when he read it. Ponder the one truth that no one can reveal to you except God. He loves you just as much while you're sinning as he does while you're praying, probably more. That truth will never free you to sin. It will only free you to worship. And um, again, those words sustained me just weeks later when I was put in a place of being confronted with my very, very deep sin and deception and devastation of Julianne. And, um, I had this journal, and I would read this over and over wow. and over again. And um, I hesitate to share this at the at the risk of sounding self-aggrandizing, but I think that there's somebody who needs to hear this. Um, hmm. About three months after everything blew apart, Larry and I would regularly meet for pancakes at the local breakfast joint. And on one Saturday um, – Julianne and I had been really struggling trying to just make it day to day. 
And he had just come back from Washington, D.C. And he had had an opportunity through what became the foundation and Doug Coe and some of the groups within mm-hmm. the breakfast. He had spent some time doing some spiritual direction with a number of national leaders that were elected officials. And he didn't drop names, but I knew that they were probably senators, congressmen, and who knows who else. You know, I had just committed adultery and just been exposed. And he looked at me as I was struggling deeply. And he said, I just spent the weekend having conversations with some of the most powerful men in the country and in the world. And he said, there's going to come a time in the future when because of your failure and because of your suffering, (laughs) that you're going to be more powerful than them as you sit one on one with people. Amen. And I can humbly say, by the grace of God, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm good at what I do, but I've had moments with people where it is absolutely transcendent and yeah. supernatural, and there's a power that's present that then is a concentric circle, like a stone dropped into a pond that goes outward, 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 that I'm convinced you experience this too, yeah. that the power is greater than any electoral power or or media influence or anything like that. And and again, this is just to say that the gospel, the good news is that when we are weak, we are strong. And just to exegete that for a moment, many people think that the passage in 2 Corinthians 12 says that when we are weak, he is strong. And that would be a, a misperception of the text. It says that when we are weak, we are strong. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just grateful for the life of Larry Crabb, for the opportunity to go from being a kid who was sexually addicted at age, oh, 22, I think. I read his book Inside Out when it came out, and it absolutely rocked my world. I had not read the Bible in a year, and I said, God, there's there's nothing in Scripture that connects to my broken, addicted, shame-filled life. So I just don't know if I can believe anymore. And somebody handed me a copy of Inside Out, and it took my breath away like no book had before. I wow. went, oh my, oh my gosh, he's, he's actually connecting Scripture to these deep thirsts inside of me, these deep longings. And it set me on a journey for many, many years of walking this path to where I am now. And I'm just so grateful for how God has used him in the lives mm. of countless folks. And I know you too. Do you have a, do you have a story or an anecdote that you want to share to wrap up? Yeah, I do. Uh, one of the ones things that Larry said to me once, and he may have said to others, I don't really care, but I know he said it to me. <laughs> he said, I was talking about, I feel so inadequate and I don't know if I'm going to be a counselor and I'm doing this. I'm on the radio. And he just paused in that Larry style. You can see him, Michael. And he said, Embrace your inadequacy. Mm. I've used that with so many people because you're wired to run from it. The anecdotal story would be there are many, but my wife and I were going to go. We went right down there to the Pinehurst Country Club. I would go over there with Larry there in Littleton. It's about 500 feet from my office. Yeah, you know right where that is. He'd say, you want to go? He had money to spend, I guess, on his tab. I was a poor whatever student. And I said, well, Jessica and I said, Jessica feels like I... um I've got you fooled and you come over to my house to record things. And I would clean up the office before you get in. And I said, and I do do that, Larry. And she said, she thinks that I've kind of got you fooled. And I said, I just want to come and, and spend some time. And he said, well, come to country club. I'm going to bring Rachel. 
And um, we were going to go there. We ended up sitting for two hours and just we got to say everything is a part of our story now that she felt that I'd done to really hurt her. And Larry turned and said, did you do that? Yep. Did you do that? And I go, yep. I said, I want to pull the curtain back, man. But before we went, he said, I'm going to tell you something before we do that. He said, I'll do it. He said, there is nothing your wife is going to tell me that's going to make my view of you change one bit. Mm. And I felt the love of a father and someone who saw me, um, Larry, I don't know what it was with me. Even I was with the program with you all going through the counseling program. There was something that he saw in me that I didn't see and that he was drawn to. But that thing, it wasn't just like, there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore or any less. We've all heard that fine. But he said, there's nothing she's going to tell me going to change my view of you. I love you. Sure, you're messy, but you're a good man and all that. And I never, I felt seen by him. And then he got to see all my crap at the end of it but he said that didn't change anything so there's some things you need to work on you do need to work on i said well thank you but i felt seen and loved and i thought i exposed but that he said i see you he saw me jim what's the one book if somebody has never read a larry crab book what's the one book other than inside out because that's what i'm going to say that you would recommend for someone to start I don't know if it's about someone just somewhere to start. He's written so many even after I left him. But the one that I really love is one he wrote while I was with him called Soul Talk. The idea, and I did so much work there, just about, in, it, it, that's for any person listening. If dogs and cats could use it, maybe, I don't know. But to uh, be able just to learn how the art of conversation, where we're connecting soul to soul, thinking in different categories as we talk. I don't think most people know how to do real conversation very, very well. So that's one I would recommend for sure. Jim, um, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. This is very last minute. And um, again, I just want to say in front of you, I'm grateful to have known this man, to have him as yeah. a, a professor, as a mentor, as a spiritual father for a season, um, as a friend, and as a man who really opened doors for me into ministry. Final thought, the very first time I ever taught in a public setting, when I moved to Colorado, I was in a Sunday school class, and Larry had been teaching that Sunday school kind of Sunday morning for a long, long time, and it was kind of my turn to be the guy. And was I that at Foothills? Yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> that church is now torn down, and they've wow. developed condos. So I did this uh, I did this um, lesson on John chapter five, the man at the pool of Bethsaida, and I was nervous and I was, you know, trying hard not to perform for yeah. him. But but, you know, it's like a uh, junior high kid playing the bass with Paul McCartney. <laughs> and uh, I'm waiting around at the podium as he and Rachel are walking out and he came up to me and he looked at me and he smiled and he said, uh, you should keep doing this. And wow, I was like, what a blessing. Well, I was like, does he mean I suck at this and I should keep doing this? Or does he, does, mm. does he mean I should keep doing this? And I found out that he meant you should keep doing this. Like you're really yeah. good at this. And uh, of course I've, I've made my living speaking and teaching since then, but two things, the power of a person's words to affirm yeah. what is seen in someone, because that set me free. Like, wow, I can actually pursue the passion of my heart. And also, 
at that time, I, I felt relatively safe with him. You know, he knew the worst about me, and I was just automatically assuming, right, with this negative filter, oh, yeah. like, oh, you need to practice. You should keep doing this. Uh, that Paul McCartney was saying, you know, mate, you ought to, you ought to practice your seat scale. <laughs> but um, so many, so many uh, words, and and so I, I'm just um, grateful for mm-hmm. the chance to share him for those who did not know him. <laughs> with the people that are listening. Um, you have a massive impact in ministry that I know about and probably far more than I do. And I've known you now for many, many years. I've walked with you in various settings and what you're doing now and how you even before this podcast went on ministered to me in profound ways. Um, for your audience, Michael Cusick is the real deal. Michael, you're in the highest level of the most intelligent people I've ever met. You love the Lord. And like Larry, and I think I'm there too a little bit, you, you, I've watched you as you've continued to progress and move and things you believe and teach, and you're not, you're, you're not a Groundhog Day guy e- either. But there is an anointing that I've watched, others know it, who know you, on your life and ministry, and even with Julianne and all that you're doing, it's noticed. And uh, if I go back to Larry to see him in his glorified state, he'd be mighty proud of you, buddy. And I am. I'm, I love you, and I'm thankful that we could have this moment together. Thank you. I am thankful for the moment, and I receive all that you've said. I'm humble. Yeah. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.